I'm super pleased to welcome all of you to the launch of Nick Wilson's book, A Landscape Photograph in the Land of the Dead. <laughs> Before we begin, I just wanted to give some thanks and acknowledgement. I have a lot of people to thank, so <laughs> bear with me. But I'll begin, of course, by acknowledging that we are situated on stolen land. We work and create on the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is home to many First Nations, Inuit and Métis, and is protected by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. And this is a treaty that extends to Indigenous and non-Indigenous relations, and it invites all of us to share the land peacefully through mutual cooperation. So Gallery 44 is inspired by the spirit of this particular agreement, and through our work we seek to share space and build equitable and reciprocal relationships across communities. So tonight, as I mentioned, we are here to launch and celebrate a beautiful collection of essays and artworks by the brilliant Nick Wilson. This book is the second volume in Gallery 44's Writer-in-Residence book series, and it responds to concepts generated during Nick's residency as Writer-in-Residence with Gallery 44 in 2022. The publication was made possible with financial support from the Nosereap Family Foundation, the Toronto Arts Foundation, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, the Toronto Arts Council, and SK Arts. For this particular book, Nick collaborated with designer Mark Bennett. Mark's here tonight. Welcome, Mark. And Mark responded to the concepts in Nick's work, in particular, Nick's exploration of the metadata of an image, which informed decisions around typeface, pagination, layout, and graphic elements. And I can say what was so beautiful about this collaboration was witnessing how the design brought another layer of conceptual rigor to the project as it lives now in its printed form. I also had the pleasure of co-editing this book with my colleague and friend, Lillian O'Brien Davis. <laughs> and the collection includes a, a really in-depth and very beautiful conversation between Lillian and Nick, which is annotated by interdisciplinary artist and curator Blair Fornwald, who is also a friend and a mentor to both Nick and Lillian. And the book also includes artwork contributions from Simon Fu, who's here, and Risa Horowitz, that's you, right? We haven't met, but hi. <laughs> and of course, I'd like to thank Caden Wigston, who is our publications coordinator, our Gallery 44 colleagues, Megan, Darren, and Layla. I can say with true admiration for all of the folks that I've listed that this book came together because of really strong community and great friendships that exist between all of the collaborators and it was a real pleasure to work on every step of the way. So allow me now to finally turn this over to Nick for a short reading from the collection and then Lillian will also join for a short conversation after which point we will turn it over to all of you if you have questions. Yeah, so please join me in welcoming Nick Wilson. Thanks so much everyone for being here. This is really incredible. It was such a collaborative project and again I want to echo Alana's thanks to everyone here. Yeah, and Lillian and I will go into that a bit later, but I'm gonna start with the first essay and the fifth essay in the book. And the first one's called A Landscape Photograph, which is based on a collaboration I did with Risa. 
A friend of mine went to the Arctic in an attempt to track the nearly 24-hour summer sun with her camera. For several weeks, she bounced between rocky shores, the receding permafrost, and an antique sailboat perched atop rolling seas surrounding the Svalbard archipelago. For almost the entire journey, the sun was obscured by dense fog and heavy clouds. The sun, at most a fuzzy yellow spot in the sky, remained a memory, both distant and ever-present. She returned several months later in the depths of polar winter's darkness to practice standing still. She sublimated this nothing activity into performance by turning a camera on herself and making a record of her idleness. I asked her to take a picture in the direction of the sun with the lens of her camera left on. The resulting image, a large black square, is a tribute to the unphotographable, the opacity of embodied experience and the limits of looking. It analogizes the way that time, place, and circumstance are enmeshed in a photograph. During its short life, photography has been overwhelmingly allied to evidentiary or documentary activities. The celebrity fan pic is not only evidence of the material existence of celebrities, but also a document of a fan's physical proximity to them. A selfie can be a proof of life or the promise of a reality to come. In any case, the photograph remains a fragment of the past. In his 1980 treatise on photography, Camera Lucida, Roland Barth expresses his amazement at photography's ability to connect him to other people, noting that a photo is, quote, a sort of umbilical cord that links the body of a photographed thing to my gaze, end quote. In the opening of this text, he recalls seeing a photograph of Napoleon's younger brother, Jerome, thinking, with amazement, I'm looking at the eyes that looked at the emperor. Some pockets of activity exist which investigate photography's usefulness in imaging the unseeable and the metaphysical. In the late 19th century, spirit photographers like William Mumler exploited the alchemical potential of the new science to imagine the living and the dead on the same picture plane. Many debates about the legitimacy of this activity would call photographers like Mumler frauds, but only because he presented them as evidence of afterlife rather than representations of it. A couple months before I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I applied to and was rejected from a prestigious residency program in Austria. I proposed a project which I would attempt to take, in which I would attempt to take a picture of the future. I'm not able to provide any concrete plan about how I would have done this, except to say I would manipulate the alchemy of traditional photographic methods, as well as the glitch and digital smear of cell phone cameras. At the time, I considered this a conceptual and mostly rhetorical project, but now I wonder if I was not looking for a way of engaging something more mystic or literary. In a landscape already shrouded in darkness, my friend made a photograph of the eye with the eye of her camera shut. In this action, the camera generated a picture of its own thwarted attempt to make an image. I wonder if this makes a more honest representation of such an otherworldly place. Brian Geisen's dream machine is a tool used to extend one's perception. It is a cylindrical column of paper with a pattern of holes cut out. It is placed on a record player and a light is hung into the center of the column. When the record player is turned on, the pattern cut into the paper causes strobing, which is meant to be looked at with your eyes closed. This flickering is a tool of divination, like a photograph. It offers the possibility of a glimpse into something beyond sight. So this is called Unseen Forces. 
In 2002, a French Catholic priest named Father Francois Brun wrote that a machine called a chronovisor was held in the shadowy collection of the Vatican. Along with millennia worth of plunder from every conceivable culture on earth, he alleged that the church had in its possession a device capable of viewing the past. As described by Brun, the machine was built by an Italian scientist named Pellegrino Ernst and worked somewhat like a radio. It picked up an unscrambled ambient electronic radiation emitted by events in the past, making them into a picture on a television screen. With the chronovisor, the inventor supposedly witnessed the crucifixion of Christ, along with many other events central to the Catholic worldview. Though the chronovisor is widely regarded as a hoax, the desire of, for photographic traces of past events is a recognizable, even enviable lust. Whether documentary, evidentiary, or poetic, the promise that we will be delivered from some states of unknowing or ceaseless speculation by a photograph is a tenuous belief. Spiritualists believe that the air is thick with consciousness. Between the solid, liquid, gas, and plasma of the visible world dwell remains of the dead, unseen but felt like a sudden shift in temperature. The spirits endure in small places, in the walls, in the spaces under tables, and in cabinets. The dead are compressed, sometimes into the impossibly thin space of an image. Digital images have reached new heights of spectrality. They dwell in devices and pass between illumination and the slick surface of a screen, often touched but never felt. Most images I see are made of light and electricity and bear many traces beyond their image. Location data, time, aperture, and camera type. I have yet to come across a history of the spiritualist movement in America that doesn't correlate its rise with the proliferation of electricity, radio waves, and radioactivity. Many retrospective histories take care to note the emerging recognition of unseen forces and the scientific disciplines which challenge traditional notions of visibility and reality. As these technologies emerged, they brought with them an understanding of the extrasensory world places beyond the limited human capacities of sight, sound, taste, touch, and smell. My reasons for taking a picture are rarely visible in the picture itself because I am so often attempting to connect with or highlight something that is long past, as well as some of the circumstances that sharpen its endurance. As I sit on the bank of Wascana Creek and hold my hand over the lens of my camera phone, what I am attempting to imagine or image are the bison bones that used to accumulate at the water's edge. The creek bears the misunderstood or anglicized remnant of the Cree name Oskanaka Astastiki, which means where the bones are piled. This record of past lives is layered with the settlement of the plains, the forced starvation and displacement of so many indigenous nations, the transatlantic slave trade, the immigration of Europeans from, a, from across a vast and powerful continent, global colonization projects, the Indian Act, the 60s scoop, the growth of the middle class, the growth of the elite class, the gradual dwindling of the middle class and the elite class, and the explosion of the global oligarch class. All these things hold this space, this very mundane space, where the dwindling middle class walk their dogs and ride their bikes, and read didactic material about Dutch Elm's disease and look at dead fish and graffiti and dead trees and walk on the paths and touch the grass and have public sex and think about having public sex and look at the open sky and think about red willow and photograph the geese and dogs and the sky and the creek and the birds. Some days the density of loss seems to gather and my mind is more attuned to the thickness of spirits hanging in the air. 
Jacques Derrida described this heaviness as hauntology, noting the way that people and their ideas seem to constantly be re-emerging long after their physical body dies and their ideas seem to go out of fashion. In this idea, Derrida gestured to the permeable boundaries made between the living and the dead. The cultural memory that swirls around a photograph can carry an image along with it. Images, their use and their meaning always happen in the present moment, though it is easy to imagine something is locked in at the instant of their making. Photographs are just one confusion among many that govern the slippery notions of time that I phase in and out of. The chronovisor alludes to a longing for certainty, which is inevitably undone by the fact that even when photographs of the past might exist, there is no certainty in how they are understood in a particular moment and how that understanding may change across time. Is there something one can ever see in a photograph or is it just something you need to know before you go looking for the past? Though one could assert that all photographs are images of time, none are representations of it. The forces of decay and the movement of the movements of the planets, solar radiation, decomposition and recomposition are traces of a force that may be gestured to, but never rendered as a comprehensible whole. Time itself evades capture and a photograph is just its wreckage. Thank you. All right, Lillian. <laughs> Thank you. Shall we chat? <laughs> Nick? So, first of all, thank you so much for reading two essays. That's so generous. And I, as, as you're reading, it occurred to me that your, your essays, like, they should be read aloud. Like, the, the cadence was, it was, I hadn't, I hadn't heard them read aloud. So, there are actually audio recordings of all of these that Nick has done that you can access through Gallery 44's podcast platform. So, I highly encourage you to listen to the other ones or listen to these ones again. So thank you. And I apologize, my voice, I've been chasing it all week. So if it goes out, I'll open it up to questions from the audience <laughs> at that point. But yeah, Nick and I had, had lunch earlier today and we were talking about like what we were going to talk about today. And something I said was I wanted to, I really wanted to like bring it, bring Regina here and make it feel a little bit like, like it would be... <clears throat> if we were there together. And that's because when I moved there for work, Nick was one of the first friends that I made in town. And you really took me seriously as a curator, which hadn't really happened before. And I think the kind of conversations that we were having were really exciting and interesting. And also, you know, Regina is a place where the art community is small enough that you know, you're friends with everyone and your, your friends are your colleagues and your colleagues are your friends. So it, it kind of like it, it felt fitting for this program and this event to kind of follow that spirit. So the first question I wanted to ask you is sort of around friendship, which is a big theme. Alana spoke about it in her introduction through the book in terms of the design and the creation of the book, but also in terms of the, a thread through all of the essays, the four that were published during your residency, and there's two additional ones, and then the interview as well. So I was hoping if you could talk to us a little bit about your, I don't know, how you, your feelings around friendship is what I was going to say, <laughs> but hopefully positive. Yeah, I think for, for me, like, I've, I've never been in a kind of arts ecosystem that's bigger than Regina. Like, I went to school in a really small town, and when I was living in bigger cities, I wasn't really making art. So I think... 
friendship and, and proximities that kind of cross into different spaces other than professionalism has always been a, a concept in my practice. And also like making art and, and thinking about ideas is also one of the only things that I feel super comfortable talking about. So <laughs> it kind of makes sense that sort of any impulse to socialize is kind of bound up with art making and and friendship and and I also think it's just you know as we know there's not a lot of money in the gig <laughs> so there has to be some other impulse and a lot of the time it's it's connecting yeah uh, on a social friendship level and I really cherish those connections and really need them yeah. and I think that this book is is very clearly the coming together of many people and I was really really thankful for that yeah and I think there's like, there, yeah, there's a sort of the coming together, people who kind of want to work together, producing something that we all wanted to make and like, I feel very excited about. And then you also mentioned, and I, I want to tease it out a little bit, the, the kind of like expanded thought, thought, idea of friendship and connection sort of like within the world of like the dead as well. Oh yeah, thank you. You're welcome. There's a, <laughs> there's a book by Heather Love called Feeling Backward. Oh, sorry. <laughs> There's a book by Heather Love called Feeling Backward. She's a queer theorist and a literary scholar. And in the very first page of the introductions, one of the things she said is that she's guided by the queer impulse to forge communities between the living and the dead. And I think my own interest in like on the ontology of queerness or some sense of history that is very remote kind of leads to this impulse to make community and i also think that it's a very like white western distinction that there is a very sharp divide between the mm -hmm. living and the dead it's not it's not a kind of like natural thing it's something that's been very much constructed and something that i'm really interested in trying to think past yeah which i think like within the essays you you chip into that and then i think we 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 dance through a, like that topic a lot in the in our conversation, in our interview, and I think like the way that Blair Fornwald was invited into our conversation was she she, she was invited to annotate our interview, and so her annotations are sort of ghostly in a way, but also came at a time where she was also in a period of grief, and so there's this. You know, you you get to kind of she she allows us into this process of of grieving, and so you know throughout the entire book, it's the dead are are not very far away, which is it's it's quite beautiful. So there's yeah, this sort of language and thinking around the dead and friendship, and then there's also a vernacular of photography that I think you employ in such a like deft way. Like I I. I'm kind of blown away by the kind of, I just, I, I, when we were talking earlier, I described it as poetry and you kind of laughed, but mm -hmm. that's for me how it felt, like the way that you you layer like this kind of like technical language into your writing. And that, so I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit more and maybe share, te tease it out a little bit for pe people here today. Yeah, I think like my engagement with photography is relatively new. Like when I... Before I went to grad school, where Risa was my thesis supervisor, 
I hadn't really engaged with photography a lot and her commitment and many other people around me's commitment made me very curious about photography and what types of refusal kind of go into image making, whether it be what is kind of like left out of a frame or what one chooses to photograph or not photograph. I was always interested in that distinction and I think when I asked her to take this photograph in the Arctic, I was really wondering, you know, what, like, when you close your eyes and you see images or after images, like, what that would be for a photograph. Right. Because there is this kind of connection between, you know, the photograph, the lens, the shutter, all of these things that are kind of based on a mammalian eye. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in what a camera's self-portrait would be and also thinking about how image making is a performance, but also a performance to yourself. Yeah. And I think there's the th last essay in the book is kind of goes into some experiences that we had at the noise of everyone sort of pulling out like, and you know, I'm not trying to, it sounds judgmental when I talk about it, but like one of the ways that a lot of people engage with artworks and things that are in these sort of like spaces of display is by photographing them. And often when I don't know what to do in those very artificial settings, just a lot of the time, taking a photograph of something gives this idea or like feeling of completion. And that's the end of that. Though. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I, I highly, I encourage you to, to peruse the essays, read the essays. I think how you yeah, how, how you've, you've kind of given us a taste of what you've been thinking about and how that's kind of explicated through, the, through your writing has made me think about photography uh, in a really different way. Do you mind um, if I go back for a second? Oh, yes, Sorry, I've, please. I've like trailed off and then now that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but yeah, that experience of being in the museum and there was this one place that you weren't allowed to take photographs and it was in the room of the Nefertiti bust. And then like when I came back, there was really just one image that I could see of people with the Nefertiti bust, and it was Beyonce and Jay-Z. Yeah. And in searching for the rights to use that image, Beyonce did not email back. <laughs> and then... It turns out she was releasing Renaissance, so... Yeah. <laughs> get it now. I understand completely. Yeah. But what I, I, we, we came up with this workaround, which was to ask Simon to make a drawing of that and I and it kind of it's because Simon was also with us at the museum and it seemed to fold in sort of many layers of unphotographability but also sort of like thinking through someone else's eyes yeah, yeah. Well, I like yeah. that yeah yeah I think you you yeah as what I what I was trying to convey is yeah I think you've made me think about photography in a in, in a different way you've prompted new thoughts and I was trying to like figure out a way to say this, but essentially, like, I am of the belief that like Nick will be someone that people will study <laughs> in the future. Like, people will read Nick's work if and we get there. If we Nick. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, I think yeah, you know, like there will be like you know, twenty-two-year-olds like in the future, like reading this. Like, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, I think I think your work is very important. And so I'm really thrilled that this book has been published. It's out in the world. We worked so hard on it. I'm so I'm so happy that I got to work with Mark and Layla and Nalana and Megan and 
Darren and like the whole crew. And I just, I was hoping you could like walk us through the book a little bit. Maybe I, I realized I should have grabbed one. You have one to encourage people, give people a sense of what the book looks like, what it's like. Because I think, as Alana yeah. mentioned, there's all these kind of beautiful details that I think, like you had a lot of input in, in collaboration with Mark. Where are you, Mark? Uh, <laughs> hi. Um, and so, yeah, to maybe having you highlight them would be, would be really special. Yeah, I think like starting... Like having conversations with Mark and getting to know him was one of the, like, one of the many joys of the project. And just having ideas kind of put into his language was really interesting. And he was also very responsive to some of the things that I was thinking about and like things that were included. Like, there's a uh, some spreads of drawings that I've made, which kind of yeah, oh sure, can't really. Which I would like before I started this project, I think that these drawings were kind of like pre research activity, like way of worrying. And they all, I collected a lot of sort of like examples of names and typefaces that included the word dead or die or dying. And I was just really interested in the way that typography had this relationship to meaning. Yeah. And so a lot of our conversations kind of started there and the embossing on the cover is a riff on the unsolved mysteries font which is also an early topic of conversation between us kind of serendipitously and a lot of the there's a motif of the of a box with an x through it which is a kind of like graphic placeholder that's used during paste up and this idea of things holding place for something else yet to come or may or may have been there was really interesting to me. And also the font that's used throughout the book is a system font, which is, as I understand it, fonts that are used internally in computers. Is that right? Okay. So there are all of these really wonderful connections that he was able to draw out. And, and yeah, the way that Blair's annotations were kind of like signaled was really great to me and the the motif here of this sort of like glow from the spine had to do with an installation I did at G44's vitrines and the like the red safety light is is comes from darkroom photography but also it was the only light that's present in seances because it's you know ghosts are too afraid of light so and the the Installation was blackout curtains with a very thin strand of ruby lith colored light coming through. Yeah. Yeah. So I encourage you if you're if that enticed you, I encouraged you to check out the book. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful series of texts. There's some fantastic images in as well. Well thank thank you so much to all of you for joining us. Thank you so much, Nick, for sharing your writing with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.